So almost 20 years ago today, uh, I had one of the most impactful moments of my life. It happened right after, um, right before I was about to graduate from college. I had finished all my coursework, and my friends were all going out to party and to celebrate. And um, that night, at about two o'clock in the morning, I got a phone call that one of my dear friends was murdered. I'll never forget the pure shock that I had, because I had just talked to him a couple hours ago. And I was like, no, you, I mean, you have it wrong. I just spoke to him. There's like no way that he's dead, because I literally just spoke to him a couple of hours ago. And that week, I had so much shock and anger. I don't know if anybody in, in this room has dealt with not just the loss of a close friend or a loved one, but the loss by murder adds a whole different com, uh, com, um, complication to it that is really quite nauseating and enraging to know that your loved one not just died because of cancer or something outside of control, but because of that, really the wrath of another person. But as shocked and as angry as I was, probably the most bewildering and scariest moment for me came a week after he died when I went to his wake. I'll never forget, I walked into the funeral home, and about 50 feet ahead of me, I saw the casket, and I didn't even have the courage immediately to look in that direction. I was absolutely terrified. I stood in the back of the line, and gratefully, my father came with me, and he walked with me up to the casket, because to be quite honest, I don't even know that I would have had the strength to walk up by myself. And what scared me so much was that by looking into that casket, for the first time in my life, I would have to reconcile with my own mortality. I realized that I, myself, Jordan, was going to die one day. Now, up to that point, I had gone to funerals. My uncle passed away uh, when I was in middle school or high school, and my uncle was the closest one to me up to that point who had, uh, who had passed away. But there's about a 50-year age gap between me and my uncle. And as sad as everybody was at his funeral, it wasn't that in looking at the casket I saw my own mortality. I thought, one day, 60, 70, 80 years from now, I'll die. But it wasn't something that sent shockwaves down my body. But that day, almost 20 years ago, I had to reconcile with my own mortality. Now, there is some wisdom to be gained from reconciling with our own mortality. And today, as we wrap up our series on Embodied, our series finale, the end of our series is talking about the end of our bodies. One day, all of us, our lives will end. We will have unfinished business, places you did not visit, people you didn't call, and your affairs not 100% in order. There will be things on your calendar that you planned uh, on going to, invitations to birthday parties that you will not make. Now, some of us in this room have recently lost someone, uh, or you yourself are going through serious health issues, and death is something for you that you have thought about quite a lot and something that you might have walked into this room thinking about. But for the rest of us in this room, if you have not recently lost someone, or if you are not going through serious health issues, there's a good chance that death is something that not only do you not think about, but you don't want to think about it. But there are moments, there are things to gain from having a sober reflection on our own mortality. Now, death is hidden from us in so many different ways. Uh, the way that cities are constructed, the way that New York City is constructed in such a way that death is really hidden from us. 
If you want to go to a cemetery, you got to go all the way out to Long Island and sit in traffic on um, the Belt Parkway or something like that and be in traffic for like an hour to even see cemeteries. For the most part, we don't see these things on a daily basis. You know, I was really struck by this one fact. Uh, churches back in the day, many of them had cemeteries on the church property. So on your way to worship service, you were walking past a cemetery. And in that cemetery were your loved ones. So you were having to reconcile with death and, and as a concept every single Sunday as you walked to service. Now we think about which brunch restaurant we're going to go to. We're like, oh, that's, I don't want Mexican today. I had it last night. <laughs> But having it hidden from us does something to us. Now, in other ways, um, medical advancements that we have since like the 1800s, and praise God for these medical advancements, make it so that death is not something that we have to see as often. You know, it's funny, my, my, my oldest son wants a Nintendo DS for Christmas, and uh, I was thinking about the video games that I played when I was his age. I played Oregon Trail. Y'all remember Oregon Trail? <laughs> the 8-bit graphics. And in Oregon Trail, it would just say, like, you'd be on a journey, and it would just say, Carol Ann died of dysentery. And it was just like, okay, I mean, she's dead. She's, that's what happens. In those days, I mean, people really would just, I mean, it was a fact of life that people died and the, the, I mean, the death rate, I mean, the death rate now is still hovering at about 100%. But the, uh, <laughs> the life expectancy back then was around 40 years old because, I mean, there were so many people uh, who died much younger than they do today. You know, after my late wife passed away, I'll never forget being so angry at God, thinking, God, how dare you let this happen to me? I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor, I've given my life to you, and how, you got some nerve to let my wife die. And then I started reading old theologians who lived in the 1700s, 1800s, and like all of the pastors had several wives who've died. Because childbirth was such a dangerous thing in uh, the 1700s and 1800s, it's still dangerous now for many people, for many women, and I realized like, this is like a new thing to expect to live a long life. It's like it's a new thing. I mean, there's one preacher I read about, not only did his wife die, but he outlived all of his 11 children. So today, I mean, anybody who's lost a child, my heart goes out to you. I can imagine it's a pain that none of us in this room know what it's like. But this is a modern phenomenon. It's only in the last 50 years, 100 years, that this is something in the history of, the, of humanity that this has been the case. And in a lot of ways, When we hear things about death, we as modern people have a different way of approaching it than people have had for the thousands of years before us. So we don't reconcile with our own mortality, and that is a loss to us. It does something to us emotionally and spiritually if we don't think about these things. Psalm 90 and 12 says it like this, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. What the psalmist is saying is that there is a correlation between the wisdom in your heart and you numbering your days. The wisdom, there is a, an aspect of wisdom that comes from having a sober reflection about your own mortality. Now, when I think about the wisdom that I want to have, I want to have, I want to glean wisdom from like a dope Oprah conversation. You know what I'm saying? I, that, that's how I want to get um, wisdom. Were you silent or were you silenced? Like that's... <laughs> That's the type of wisdom that I'm like, ooh, that was good. That was a bar, Oprah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want the type of wisdom that comes from thinking about my own mortality because it's just depressing. It's sad. 
It's scary. There's so many unknowns. There's so many difficult emotions tied to that. The author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, says something very similar. He says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind. And here's what Solomon says, in the living, those of us in this room right here should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. The heart of the wise, listen to this, y'all, the heart of the wise is in a house of mourning, but the, how, the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. Now, verses two through four of Ecclesiastes in this chapter are very straightforward, and they make a simple but profound point. There is a lot to be gained by us having a sober reflection on death. Those who do so realize that the same end awaits them and our hearts are turned from silliness. Uh, if you've gone to a funeral recently, uh, I don't know if this happens to you as well, but it, it tends to concentrate your mind. It temporarily shakes us from the absorption and the world of daily life. And we start asking ourselves the big questions of life. Am I living for things that matter? Will I have what it takes to face this new stage of life? Or do I have a real relationship with God. So what Solomon is telling us and what the psalmist tells us in Psalm 90 is that there is a lot of wisdom to be gleaned from uh, reconciling with our own mortality and thinking about um, our death. And so today in our series finale, we're talking about death and uh, not from this perspective that I hope is overly emotionally taxing, but something that gives us a lot of sober reflection, some learnings that I want us to have. So what are some learnings that I, I think um, we can glean from the house of mourning. Uh, number one, I think it's this. We do not have physical eternity. So now is the best time to do what is right. You do not have physical eternity. You do not have tomorrow promised to you. You do not have next year promised to you. So now is the best time to do what is right. Now is the best time to call that family member that you haven't spoken to in 20 years because you had an argument over who made the mac and cheese on Thanksgiving. <laughs> and for the last two decades, nobody on this family has talked to this other person. Now is the best time to call them. Not now, please don't take out your phone right now, but <laughs> after service uh, today, not to hurry people to make a decision immediately, but like now is the best time to do what is right. Now is the best time to apologize for the thing that you did that you know was wrong. Now is the best time to reach out to your child that you haven't spoken to for 10 years because you and the child's mother got into an argument over child support and you just cut them off. Now is the best time to apologize. Now, not in five years, not when things feel right. We do not have physical eternity promised to us. Here's what James says in James 4, 13 through 17. He says this, come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business there and make a profit. Here's what James says. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like a, a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is sin to know the good to do and yet not do it. Tell us how you really feel, James. James says, you presuming that you'll have five years, 10 years, five days to do something is arrogance. It's boasting and arrogance because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. 
And there is a sober reflection in thinking about our own mortality that one day we will die. Hopefully it's not soon. I pray the Lord gives us health and, and prosperity for all of us. But all of us one day will, will die. And now is the best time to do what is right. You know, there's a scripture where, the, where God is speaking to people. He says, today, if you hear my voice today, don't harden your heart. If you hear my voice today, don't harden your heart. If you hear God inviting you to something today, even if you, you've been, you might have been so far from God the last decade, or you might, God might be speaking to you in your life, do not harden your heart. Now, one of the things I've realized about Jesus in the last number of years is that Jesus is always inviting me into something better than I would currently do on my own. And it might be scary to think about what it would look like for you to do whatever that hard thing is in your life. But Jesus is extending that to you as an invitation to do it. Because by doing that, you will leave a legacy much bigger and better um, than you are currently living in your life. So I don't know everybody in this room. I don't know everybody watching online. What is that thing? What might be something that God is inviting you to do? You've been pushing it off. You've been saying you'll do it in a year, five years. What might be that thing? I'm not talking about, you know, life is short, so start a business. Nothing wrong with starting businesses. I'm not talking about trying to make more money. I'm talking about what is the invitation from Jesus to you right now? And we do not have eternity physically promised to us. So now is the right time to do those things. The second thing I think we'll learn in the house of mourning is a sober reflection is, am I living for like what truly matters? Now is the best time to evaluate if we're living for the things that matter. Here's a reality. We all need something that death cannot, we need to live for something that death cannot take away. And in many ways, modern people like me and you, our search for fulfillment comes in this world happiness. And this world happiness is good, it's happy, it's real. And in some ways, I also want you to hear that I believe that God wants us to have things in this life that make you happy. I think God is a good father, and God is a good father that gives us gifts. But God doesn't want us living for the gift, he wants us living for the giver. All of us need to live for something that death cannot take away. One day, all of your accomplishments, all of the likes and retweets, all of the money in your account, your entire sneaker collection will be gone from you. I didn't want to make y'all emotional, but I had to say that. <laughs> hey, but when you're at a funeral, especially for a loved one, someone who's close to you, I think one of the things you'll realize is that everything in this world is temporary except for his love. Everything in this world is temporary except for his love. That big accomplishment that you want, again, not saying it's a bad thing. It might be God calling you to do that for this season of your life. But that thing, it's going to be away from you one day. One of the most helpful things that I've learned over the years is a pastor, a pastor, a mentor of mine uh, would always refer to himself as the interim pastor of that church. And he was a pastor of that church for like 30 or 40 years. And he was like, I'm the interim pastor. He reminded himself that one day there'll be another person who will come behind him and take his place. And the best he could do is live a faithful life and pass it on to someone else. That even his life's calling and his life, life's work, which was beautiful, all of his accomplishments would one day be taken away from him. And so many different times we, we wrestle with this, um, our pursuits, our passions, and in many ways, I don't know that we're always thinking about the things that truly matter and, and will matter. 
Uh, there's a story about this one preacher who was preaching a sermon on the love of God, and two women in his church were so won by what he was saying that they decided to leave their jobs and to go into missionary service. They go home and tell their parents all that they're about to do. They were going to leave college, and instead of pursuing a career, they were going to go to be missionaries. The parents, hearing this, were immediately disturbed. They go to the preacher and they said, listen, I don't know what you're preaching down there at First Baptist or whatever little church you, you're preaching at, but like, what kind of security is that in like, missionary work? Like, They're going to go, they're going to be in pretty dangerous uh, scenarios, and they're going to miss out on what their friends are doing. And the preacher listens to all of their concerns and says, yes, all of these things are very true. Uh, they will miss out on what their friends are, are doing. Uh, they won't advance their career in similar ways but you want them to have security? He says, we are traveling right now at millions of miles an hour on a little rock in space, which is constantly expanding. We are depending on the core of the earth to continue to, to, to pull us and for the sun to be in existence. And one day, the sun is gonna stop spinning, and at some point, earth is going to crash into the rest of space, and we will all be, uh, uh, this will just be the earth, and everything will be a pool of dust a dust space all throughout the world. And you think a master's degree is security? Either we have the love of God or we don't. Either the arms of God are really secure and what he says about himself and his promises to us are true or they're not. And if they're not, think about how scary that is. And there's nothing we can do to mitigate that. Now, it's in death that we realize that God tells us that if I am not your security, if my love is not enough, if my love is not real in your life, then you'll never have it because his love is the only thing that can never be taken away from us. Either his arms, the everlasting arms of the Father are strong enough to hold us and will guide us from this end through all, all eternity, or we are subject to just the, the gravitational pull of the sun. Now, in some ways, I was thinking about this, and in some ways, death is like a smelling salt. It smells bad, but it wakes us up. And what I think the writers of this text will tell us, will tell us in, in, uh, both in James and in Ecclesiastes, is that there is a really a sober sobriety that comes when we think about it in so many different ways. They're effective to wake us up from our illusions that we have eternity or that um, the small little things that we're doing right now uh, are so important. So I'm not calling for anybody to quit your job and apply to jobs at Renaissance. We're not hiring anybody else. <laughs> I'm not saying that you need to leave your job because your job is ministry, where you are right now. There are people who are far from God, but they're close to you. But I am saying that we need to evaluate whether we are living for things that truly matter. Man, one of the people in my life who's exemplified this probably more than anybody is uh, my cousin George, my dear cousin George. And cousin George was the patriarch of our family, but he had no kids. Cousin George taught people what it meant to follow Jesus, but he had no degree, no fancy degrees. Cousin George left a legacy of faith, but he didn't leave a, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And his life has so meaningfully shaped my life that his words to me are the things that I go back to over and over and over again. And his life was so peculiar because he gave his life to living for eternity, something that truly mattered. He was a man who followed Jesus simply, but his simple life of following Jesus faithfully has left a legacy of faith 
And that is the thing that I think, above all, all of us can commit to, that we would live a simple life of faith, trusting Jesus, and we would pass down a legacy to people who come after us. You know, years ago, my wife and I um, went down to Cousin George's house. When he was the young age of 97, he died in his hundreds, and that picture was us at his 100th birthday party. And um, we interviewed Cousin George, and the conversation you know, got to all the different topics, and I asked him, I said, Cousin George, what was it like growing up down the street from the KKK? And his words to me about not letting hatred take root in my life were the single most important things to me in the last couple of years. I asked Cousin George, I said, Cousin George, how do you not hate white people? How? The things that you've seen? And he looked at me and he smiled. He said, well, Jordan, I tried hatred for a year, and it was the most miserable year of my life. And ever since then, I've realized that I'm just going to trust God and do what God is calling me to do, and I will not let anybody take my joy from me. After George Floyd was killed, uh, the Twitterverse had your boy feeling hot. And I was feeling the... I was feeling real hatred starting to seethe up in my body. And I didn't turn to a TED talk, a book. I returned to the words of Cousin George. And those words have been the single most important things to me in the last number of years. They've given me endurance when I didn't think I could even have endurance. They showed me about what it means to live a life that is rooted in faith, trusting that God one day will make all things right and that that would expel hatred from my heart, and those have been the things that have happened. Now listen to this. Cousin George would have, did not live in a mansion. He didn't have a fat 401k. He didn't write any books, but he left behind a legacy of faith, and this is the, at the most crucial point of his life. Faith was the thing that supported him, guided him, led him, and it oozed out of him into every single crevice and every single relationship. What good are all of your accomplishments if you do not live a life that honors Jesus? And the people around you would see that. What good is it if you have all the accomplishments in the world and you don't leave a legacy of life and faith to those who are around you? You know, as a person who um, does services and does funerals for people, I unfortunately know that there are two sides, two types of remarks that people make. There are the public remarks that people make in front of the church where they talk about the deceased in glowing terms and how much they will be missed and funny stories from when they were 13 years old. And then there are the private remarks that are said. I'll never forget talking to a woman after her father's funeral, and she said some very beautiful things about her father from the stage. And we got behind the stage and she said, well, my father was a complicated man. And the reality of the legacy that he left was far, far more littered. Now here's the beauty of, of God. Everybody in this room listening to me, you can start building a legacy of godliness right now. What she probably would have loved more than anything was a real honest conversation of deep reflection, apology, confession, all the things. But she never got that. One day, people will be speaking well of all of us in front of a, in front of a group of people, but what is the legacy that we will leave behind for them that they'll think about three weeks after the funeral? Here's the goal that I have in my life, and here's the goal I want you to have in your life to be able to say these words that Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 and 7. He says, I have fought the good fight. Faith is a fight. It's a fight to believe. It's a fight to trust. It's a fight to give. It's a fight to serve. 
It's a fight to love people who don't feel, you don't feel like loving them. Paul says, I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to those who have loved his, his appearing. That's our goal, for you to be able to say that you have fought the good fight and you have finished the race. And only in thinking about our lives through the lens that we do not have eternity will we be able to say such a thing one day. The last thing I think that we can glean and learn from the house of mourning is that death is not the end. Death is not the end. Now, I was talking to a mentor, a friend of mine, and he was saying, like, modern thought equips people for death worse than any school of thought in the history of the world. Every religion, uh, thought process, Hinduism, Confucianism, Islam, uh, every thought, Christianity has, Judaism has prepared people for the afterlife. Nothing prepares people for what is beyond life worse than our modern way of thinking. Because we live all for the right now, and then one day it is taken away from us. And if there is no God, like I said earlier, one day the earth will just crash into another planet and we will all turn into dust. It doesn't really make any uh, sense. But scripture teaches that death is not the end. You know, it's funny because people ask me a lot of questions in the hallway, and every now and then someone will ask me something super deep. This one guy came up to me in the hallway, and he said, do you believe in premillennial tribulation or postmillennial tribulation? I said, which one do you believe in? <laughs> That's the one I believe in too. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. I like Googled it on the way out, like, what is, hey Siri, what is premillennial tribulation? Uh, I don't want to get, like, when I talk about death is not the end, I, I don't really think it's the most urgent thing for us to consider, all of the minutia of what it means. Is heaven really paved with gold streets? What is this? What is that? I, I don't know that that's the most important thing for us to consider. But there are two considerations that we definitely need to make. One of those is in Hebrews 9 and 27. Uh, a sober reflection of our own mortality would help us to come to terms with what Scripture tells us about the end of our lives. Hebrews 9 and 27 says this, And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this, judgment. So also, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Now, the author of Hebrews puts a lot of themes in here. The first of judgment, earlier in Hebrews, actually, Hebrews 4 and 12, he says, everything you have done will be laid bare before the eyes of whom we must give account. What scripture tells us, for us to think about soberly today, is that all of us will be judged. Now, I've heard people through ear hustling and through different conversations, they say, well, it's just messed up. Like, why would God just judge me whether or not, based on whether or not I believed in Jesus? I said, well, that's not the basis for which God judges you. Judges you based on the good, the standards of right and wrong, the standard of sin and uh, what it means to to live a life that pleases him and, and doesn't please him. One of the things I've thought about in the last number of years, in so many different conversations, is if you were to walk around with your iPhone around your neck, and uh, I don't think droids have this feature, but there's a and you started the recorder. <laughs> if you started the recorder only when you started talking about how people should live. If at the end of the year you said, hey Siri, what are my standards for life? 
If Siri were to play back your own standards for what you say life should be lived, you would fall significantly below your own standards. How much more would we fall below the standards that God has? So we're not judged simply because you believe in God or, believe in, or don't believe in God. We're judged based on our own standards. And check this out. Every good parent in this room tries to teach your kids that there are consequences to your actions. If your kid walks in a room, opens the orange juice, and just tosses it in the air, you wouldn't be like, well, that's okay. No, like there, there's consequences for our, all of our actions. And I would be committing pastoral malpractice if I didn't call us to examine if whether or not, if you were judged on your own actions, or would you need saving? Now, I, listen, when I first became a Christian, I started going to a church that was, you know, fire baptized, Holy Ghost filled, show enough saved. And I, I thought saved was attached to a certain way of dressing and, and talking on a Sunday morning. And I didn't realize the theological depth of what that term truly means. And I've struggled for years, really honestly, to be thinking about, well, how can I be made right based on Jesus' death? So every single Sunday, we talk about the cross, we talk about the gospel and what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But even to be perfectly honest, I've gone years thinking about like, well, how does that actually make God right with me? Like, why couldn't God just forgive me? I think for two reasons, I think we all know this in our, in our real life, all real forgiveness costs you something. Like if you've had to forgive someone, if you've had to forgive somebody for real, it's cost you a lot of peace. If you've never had to agonize over forgiving somebody, then I don't, I don't know that you've ever really experienced giving someone forgiveness. Forgiveness always costs something. On a very basic level, if you've had to forgive somebody of some money, if your friend, uh, if you loaned your friend $200 and you forgave them of what you paid, when you forgive them, you don't walk down the street and just magically like, oh, <laughs> there's $200 in my pocket. Like it doesn't happen. You have to absorb the loss in yourself. Now, at a basic level, we all know that in every real scenario, real forgiveness costs us something. That's one reason that Jesus had to die. The second reason that Jesus had to die is something that Scripture teaches us called substitutionary atonement, that Jesus died in our place and that in his death, we get life. Now, some would say, how can someone else's death give me life? We talked about this on Good Friday, but every single meal you have ever eaten demonstrates how everyone benefits from some form of atonement, whether they acknowledge it or not. Everything we eat, whether from a plant or an animal, was once alive. It had to be plucked from a tree, pulled from the earth, or slaughtered in a house to sustain you. Every meal is a testament to the fact that other things must die if you are to live. Before you had your coffee this morning, there was a coffee plant in Ethiopia producing berries. Those berries were stripped from the living plant. They were dried and they were roasted, then crushed before you could take a sip. Everybody in this room living off of good vibes and caffeine, <laughs> something died for you to live. Before you eat chicken wings later today and watch the Jets win, there was a chicken, hopefully free range, that was minding its business. And it was killed to give you life. Every time we say grace, we acknowledge that in order for us to live, something must die. Now, this is infinitely more true for us eternally. In order for us to live with God, the Son of God had to die. And the, the response for the Christian is to live with a reverence, an adoration, 
and a gratitude for the Son of God who gave his life for us. So, Scripture teaches something that we can all have, which is justification by faith. But it's not something that is automatically handed out to people. What Scripture calls us to do is to really truly have a sober reflection about our life and to come to God and ask God to examine our lives, to ask God to give us conviction, to ask God to give us grief over our life and our sin and our separation from him, and to ask him to give us life. For those of you in this room, listen, we, we never like, we don't try to scare people into a confession. We don't, you know, I went to, I've been to churches that are fire and brimstone, and we, we don't get down like that because I, don't, I think if I can scare you into it, somebody in three weeks when the fear leaves, you'll be out of it in no time. Many of you have grown up in churches where you were scared to your first time you got baptized, and then you, as soon as the fear left, you left. That's not what we're trying to do. But think about it. If scripture says that one day God will judge us, are you trying to be judged on your own too? Or do you want to be judged by the life of Jesus, the the free gift of grace that he offers us? What theologians call justification by faith. So justification by faith is a beautiful theology. We'll probably get to this in the foundations course in January as well. But it means that you and I can live free of fear of penalty from God. Uh, This past year, my wife and I went to Iceland and man, Iceland is spectacularly beautiful. It is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. And uh, we went to this one place to see the icebergs and the glacier. And you might want to go soon because it might not be there for long. But um, we were there. And while we were doing this glacier boat tour, uh, we saw these seals chilling on an iceberg. And the boat uh, tour captain was telling us that, oh, yeah, these seals are like some of the fattest and happiest seals in all of the world because they're inside this little bay. Now a bay is a part of like, that's connected to a large body of water, but it's protected by land. And this bay was so narrow that seals can get through, but the predators, the large predators, sharks and like killer whales couldn't get through. So as a result, these seals were just living free and happy. In the bay, they didn't have to worry about a predator. In the bay, they could take naps. And that's what they did. They would go fish and then go on the iceberg and chill because no predator can make it into the bay where they were. Now, Scripture tells us something similar, that therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In Christ, there is no true fear of judgment because the spirit of Christ has set us free from the penalty and the law of sin and death. And it's all because of his cross. It's not because of you and your goodness. The point of life is to realize what Christ has done for you and for you to live in adoration for that and reverence for that, to follow Jesus, to pick up your own cross and follow him. Uh, An old preacher once told a story about the thief on the cross. Now, when Jesus was crucified, there were three people being crucified. It was Jesus in the middle, and there were two thieves to his side. There was one thief who mocked Jesus and hurled insults at him. But there was another thief who was on the other side that said these words. He's sometimes referred to as the penitent thief. It says, but the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We, me and you, we're punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man, this man in the middle has done nothing wrong. He didn't even know his name. Then he he said, he didn't know his name. Then he said, Jesus. (laughs) 
Read the next verse. He found out his, next, his name. <laughs> then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I tell you, Jesus tells him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The preacher told the story and he said that he used some creative license when he starts talking about this thief's arrival into the pearly gates. Jesus promised this man that today he would be with him in paradise. This man arrives and there's angels with their iPads out and they're asking, sir, on what basis are you here? They scroll through his life and they see all the crimes and the sins. And under the one column for the good that he has done, it's blank. And this guy, the first angel says, ah, man, I've never seen this before. There's not like one good thing on your list. You didn't come to the 9 a.m. service on Christmas Day. You've never served people. And in confusion, he goes and gets his supervisor. He's like, I can't handle this myself. He goes to get his supervisor. His supervisor comes over and they say, sir, you've never been to a Bible study, never gotten baptized. You didn't give a penny to your church. You've never served anybody. On what basis are you here? The thief, in equal confusion, says, sirs, I'm here because the man in the middle told me I can come. Whenever we think about justification by faith, if the answer of the question about what makes you right with God starts with you, you've already started to answer it incorrectly. If it's because I believe, because I got baptized, because I understood, because I joined the church, because I served, then you are going in the wrong direction. The only basis for which you can say your standing with God can be made justified is because the man on the middle cross told me that I can come. And that is justification by faith. So there's two things that I want you to consider today. Uh, for those of you in this room who have never really made a, a declaration of faith, you, you don't even know where you stand with, with Jesus, and something inside of you is feeling convicted today, that you're starting to feel an awareness. That's where it all starts. It starts with an awareness that you are separated from God, from God, that your life is not the way that God wants, that you've never trusted in Jesus for your salvation. Here's what we want to do. After service, there'll be a prayer team down in front, and our brother Lester or me will be in the front as well. And we would just love to talk to you really quickly. Again, we're not trying to twist your arm. Nothing's going to happen to you. But we would love to talk to you about what it would look like for you to make a declaration of faith as you consider your own mortality and, and all these things. Not to scare you into it, but just to have an honest conversation about where you are. You don't have forever to make a declaration. But for the rest of us uh, in this room who have already made that declaration, I wanted to do something that people have done for the last thousands of years, and they've taken something called communion. Communion is the rehearsal, the remembrance of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Not to condemn us, but to, to save us. Jesus' gift of his life for our life that allows us to live, that allows us to have life with God. So if you have placed your faith in Christ, if you have been baptized, we would invite you to take communion at this time. 